We are continuing our series this morning called The Difficult Journey of Faith, which is a look at Abraham and, and what his life can teach us about what it looks like to trust God and walk by faith. Now today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14, chapter 14. You can follow along in the Bibles uh, in front of you, or you can turn on your Bible if you have it on your phone. We'll have some of the slides up here this morning. Now in Genesis chapter 14, we find Abram, that was uh, Abraham's name before God changed it. Uh, We find him and his nephew Lot, they've just separated, right? If you call, they both had so much stuff, so many animals, so many things that their herdsmen were fighting with each other because there was limited grazing land. And so Abram, in his graciousness, said, Lot, even though it was Abram's right to take whatever he wanted, he said, Lot, you choose whatever land you want, and I will go the other way. I'll do whatever you want, which was an incredible, incredible act of graciousness and trust in the Lord, as we talked about last week. So Lot looked up, and he saw the Jordan Valley, which was green and luscious and looked fantastic. So that's the way he chose. Abram went the other way. Now, as we come to chapter 14, we do not know how much time has passed But what we do know is Lot is going to find himself in a whole heap of trouble. I'll tell you what I'm I'm talking about here as I read the first several verses of Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 1. In the days of Ramaphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Now 12 years had they had served Keterlemer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Keterlemer and the kings who were with him came, and they defeated the Rephaim, and Astor Karnaim, and Zuzim, and Ham, and Emim, and Shavakirathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Paran on the border of the wilderness." Verse 7, they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. With Kedor Lemor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddam was full of butamen pits, like tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. And that's what we'll pause because I need to recover from all those names. All right, only slaughtered three or four, so we're on a good start. So let me recap that if you were busy just trying to figure out how to pronounce those names. It, chapter 14 brings us to the first recorded international crisis. It was like the first world war, if you will, that we find in the Bible. And you had these kings that were in the Jordan Valley, and they were paying tribute to this king named Ketolomer. And, and in the 13th year, the kings got tired of it. And they said, we're not paying you anything anymore. We're done. Well, he did not take too kindly to that. Uh, and so he gathered his allies and he went down there to remind them that their participation was not optional. 
Now, when we think of kings, we think of huge countries, but back then you could have like a city and you could be king over just that city that only had like several thousand people living in it. So imagine like the, the king of West Milford or the king of Bloomingdale or the king of Wyckoff and so forth. All right, so we have Kedon Lamar and his allies, and they come into the valley. They're making war with everybody, slaughtering everybody. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are like, all right, let's join into this. Let's go take these guys on. Well, that did not turn out very well. As they got slaughtered so bad, they ran, and they were running so full of fear for their lives that they fell into tar pits, which I'm not sure how you do, but it happened. And in all of this, Lot gets captured, Abram's nephew. They take him as a prisoner. And that's where we are so far. Now, the focus of this chapter is on Abram and what he does to save his nephew Lot. But before we get there, I wanted to pause. And I want to focus on how Lot got himself into this predicament because I think there's an important lesson for us all so that we don't find ourselves in similar predicaments. Now, to learn this lesson, we got to go back to what we talked about last week in chapter 13. As I said earlier, herdsmen for both Lot and Abram, they're fighting Animals trying to graze the same land, it's not working out. And so Abram said to Lot, you know, choose whatever land you want, I'll go the opposite way. And I want you to look at how Lot responded to this offer. I'm going to read it for you in Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley that was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. All right, so Lot decided to go east because the land looked better, right? To him, it looked like the Garden of Eden. Even though he never saw the Garden of Eden, the stories that he heard, this looked like God's, God's country. And if you, do, if you understand or have ever studied Old Testament narrative, there is a lot more meaning in the Hebrew words than we sometimes grab just reading it in our English. There was a passion for this land, like a fulfillment, like this, this is it. This is everything I need to be fulfilled and to accomplish all the things I wanted to accomplish. This is, this is God's country. Now, some commentators will say Lot's heart was evil. He was selfish, but there was really no indication of these things. In fact, in fact, it was either Peter or Paul. They referred to Lot as a righteous man, a man who tried to do right in the eyes of the Lord. I think what he's doing here is just making a logical decision. Like, given the alternatives, like if you're given two jobs, you want to take the job with low pay or the job with high pay? You know, I'm taking the job with high pay, okay? I'm assuming I'm not alone in that. So he gave this land that has all this potential for the flocks. Thank you, uncle. I'm God. We cannot blame him for that choice, in my opinion. The problem was that this land was in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we already have been told, and will be told again, was full of evil. And I think this is one of the lessons for us this morning, is when we are making decisions in our lives, we have to have the discernment to look beyond the immediate benefit that we're getting. We have to look beyond the shiny toy that we're staring at. I mean, it was a great land for grazing. That was the immediate benefit. But what was the bad benefit? It was near Sodom and Gomorrah. 
In Genesis 13, it tells us that he, he, when he moved, he moved near Sodom. And then in Genesis 14, it, it changes. It said that Lot lives in Sodom. So he goes for these grazy lands, but then it's taking him closer and closer into Sodom and Gomorrah, which will be part of the downfall of his family, as we'll come to read. There are so many times in our lives where we're so taken by the immediate benefit of something that we're not paying attention to the danger behind it. For example, uh, I went to a Christian school through elementary, and then, and then my dad sent me to public school, Hunt Middle School, uh, when I got to sixth grade, it was sixth through eighth there. And, uh, and all the other kids knew each other because they all went to the public school elementary. I didn't know anybody, so I was not very popular in middle school. And like every kid, or most every kid, uh, we want to be popular. We want to be well-known. We want to be well-liked. Well, when I got into high school, when I went to Foss, I got in with some of the popular kids, and I became uber popular. You remember in high school how you knew you were popular if other people knew your name and you didn't know theirs? You know, they walk down the hall, you're like, hi, Jeff. I'm like, hi. That's, I mean, that's how you knew you were popular. And, uh, and so I kept hanging out with them and getting more introduced to their friends. But what I failed to see, or what I most likely just chose to ignore, was how they would inf influence me in my life. That those kids that I spent, geez, what, 40 hours a week with in school, they were honoring God. And so as the deeper and closer I got to them in school and ate lunch with them, and then they started to invite me to things on Fridays and Saturday nights, the more and more it damaged my relationship with God. It affected my intimacy with God, my dependence on my God, getting to know him. It affected the way that I talked, the way that I acted. And worst of all, the thing that I regret most is it really tainted my ability to share Jesus with them because I was living just like they were. To them, following Jesus was no different than what they were doing. And seeing some of them now that I see and how they're living, like if I could go back knowing and seeing what I could see now that I wasn't seeing then, I would trade all that popular popularity in a heartbeat. It was all worthless in the end. It cost me nothing but problems when it came to following God. Proverbs 13, 20 says that whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer you harm. That's what I experienced. It's what Lot experienced. It's so easy for us to be focused on the immediate benefit things of our lives and not see the danger that's lurking past them. Not all open doors are positive opportunities. Some of them are just an invitation to disaster. I mean, perhaps taking a job with more money and larger pay, it looks great in the end, but, but the negative impact that it will have on your faith. But you have to look beyond that. Where am I going to be working? Who am I going to be with? This can even show up, this idea, in little ways. I used to, I've known a couple of guys I've gotten to know, and they would, they would come across on Facebook old boyfriends and girlfriends, and they'd chat, hey, how are you doing? And then as these couple stories would go on, thankfully nothing happened. They were just an invitation to temptation and to disaster. In that moment, they're like, oh, it's so good to talk to them, but they're not seeing the danger that's behind that benefit. Or I even think of, uh, I was talking to somebody about this this week, TV nowadays. Man, it, like back when I was growing up, uh, in olden times, uh, you know, where you, the, your remote control was the kid who changed it, right? When you had to wait to get up in the morning for, for cartoons, you know, and the static was on there if you woke up too early. There was a clear difference between movies and TV. Like, 
The quality level was clear. Today, like, listen, anybody can make an awesome TV show with, with graphics and the technology. And so there's so many more shows just flooding the network. The problem is the sexualized nature of these shows is just grown in leaps and bounds. And I don't know how many Christians that I have talked to where they're so tempted to watch a show because it's exciting and everybody's talking about it, but it's so filled with just blatant pornography. And they watch the show for the exciting storyline and the graphics and what it looks cool without paying attention to the long-term damage that watching that stuff is gonna do to them, their heart, their relationship with God and their relationship with their spouse. We could spend all day talking about time and time again of how something was good or we felt was good presented to us because we didn't have the wherewithal to look for the pending disaster behind it. It cost a lot of pain and suffering in our lives. And, and my prayer for you when writing this was like, man, if there's any area of their life, anybody listening to this, including my own life, where we're like, there's something that just looks good that comes into our lives, something we want, that we will have just the ability to pause and say, okay, Lord, is, is this really good? Right? Is this really good? Or is there danger here? Is it not worth what it's going to bring into my life? Now, I'm not sure what was going through Lot's mind, but the text just implies all he saw was the benefit. Oh, I wasn't considering the dangers. But ultimately, he put himself in with these bad people. And it doesn't say he was even directly involved in this war. He may have been, I don't know. But man, he sure suffered the consequences of it. Let this be a lesson to all of us. We must be so aware when we're walking around in this world of the spiritual disasters that await for us. Are you with me, church? All right, let's continue on. See where the story goes in verse 13. Then one, had, one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and of Enir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. I think they should make like a movie out of this one. You know, like this is an exciting Bible story. I've never seen like a Christian movie on this. Like villains, there's heroes, like there's a daring nighttime raid. I'm just noticing now, like this would be fun to watch. You know, like, like the original Rambo or something or the Abronator or something, I don't know. I can't believe I just said Abraham. Abraham. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> just go past that moment. Um, all right. So the goal of every piece of scripture is for us to see what we can learn about God and what we can learn about what God is calling us to or calling us away from. The problem with pulling out something out of this like section of, of, of scripture is like probably none of us are ever going to lead a military raid like in the middle of the night to save our family member who's been captured, right? It might be a few of us dads that, you know, we're going to go run a raid to escape our daughters from some, some bad date on, that she's on or something like that. But beyond, we're, we're never going to probably do this. And if you have, I would love to hear the story. But what I do think 
we are much more likely, I guarantee that we will come across, is having a member of our family or a member of our church family become spiritually captured in their lives. And I think this is where the, 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 the passage can speak to us. When we know somebody who has made decisions in their lives that have put them, themselves in spiritual danger, where they've been captured by the things of the world, where they, where they've walked away from God and now they're in a struggle. They've been captured by sin. Brothers and, and sisters in Christ. The question is, what is our role in that moment? What is our role in this moment? I bet if we sat down and we thought long enough, we probably wouldn't even have to think very long. We can all think of people that we are worried about right now. Okay, if you sit here today and your faith is in Jesus Christ, you could probably think of somebody, man, there's someone who needs to get rescued in my life. I believe scripture is very clear in multiple places. We'll look at one passage where it is our job to go and do our part to rescue them, to try and bring them back. Galatians 6.1, Paul says, brothers, talking to the Galatian church, if anyone is caught in a sin, caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too may be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is speaking here to Christians about other Christians. He said, we should restore them. We should bring them back. Now, why would Paul need to say this? Anytime Paul needs to say anything, it's because it's not something we do naturally. You never see Paul in scripture go, make sure you drink water every day. Why? Because people are going to drink water every day. He's exhorting them in people, things that he sees, struggles that he sees, and things he does not see them doing. And I think one of the reasons he says this is because it can be easy for us as Christians to let people slip away. And I think there's a few reasons for this, and there's probably many more. I think sometimes we let people slip away because we just have a hard heart. We can get so frustrated with people and their choices, and, and we can be like, you know what? You get to a point where we said they made their bed, they can what? They can lie in it. Right? This 15th century French proverb that says, one makes the bed, so he will find it. Right? The consequences you suffer, you create for yourself. Abram could have said, Lot chose this land. He chose to live close to Sodom. Then he chose to go make it worse and live in Sodom. This is what he gets. Maybe the Lord will teach him something. In this. Sometimes we have a hard heart. We're like, you know what? I tried to tell them. They made the choice. They're on their own. I think we can also struggle with being apathetic. We can struggle with laziness. I mean, how many times have we thought in our lives, man, I haven't seen, if you've been a part of a church family, you'll, you'll know it's not everybody comes to church every week. And there'll be some times where you'd be like, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. What do we do in those moments? Do we call them? Do we check in on them? I think in our lives, we don't, I don't think we give enough credit to the Holy Spirit for bringing things to our mind. To be in a church one morning and think of somebody for, no, for a random, just no random reason at all, just they come to our mind. 
think it would do us well to stop and think, man, is this the Holy Spirit trying to let me know? Is the Holy Spirit like this prisoner? The Holy Spirit's not a prisoner, but like this prisoner who came and said, Abram, hey, here's what's going on. The Holy Spirit's saying, hey, you need to check on so-and-so. You need to check in on so-and-so. But how many times do we do that or think that and then we don't follow up? It's a form of apathy and that kind of hurts and stings to say, but it is. We're not interested enough to take action. We don't write down a note, hey, follow so-and-so or set a time to do it. Or maybe it's just laziness. Or we just allow ourselves to be distracted with other things. You know, you don't see Abram, this guy come, Abram, Lot's been captured. All right, let me, I'm just working on this garden I'm building. I'll, I'll get to him afterwards. He makes it a priority, this lost brother, or this lost nephew, I should say. And sometimes, I think we just don't want to sacrifice. We talked about this last couple of weeks. We live in a very me-centered society. Instead of being about the community in which we're in and being for the people around us and our family, we're very me first. I'll be about my community if they are about me. It's all about me. And so we don't want to risk things. In fact, I think it was probably easier for this. Like, you see, Abram, he went this one night. He, had to, he went to do this, this take, attack him in the middle of the night, get his lot back, and he was done. He's, he captured him and he was done. I think it's much harder, not that I've ever done this, but it's much harder that when someone's spiritually attacked, it is not usually a quick thing. It can be utterly exhausting. It can take lots of time. It can take endless meetings and calls and texts because sometimes they're not even always like realizing they're in trouble. You have no idea. And so it can be utterly exhausting. I think that's why Paul probably said here in Galatians 6, he said, bear one another's burdens. That means if, if they got a mess in their lives, you make it your mess, that you may help them clean it up. But we're just not always willing to make that sacrifice. We're willing to go only so far. And yet we see this example in Christ. In Ephesians 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. He says, by grace you have been, anybody? Saved. So we're dead in our sins and Jesus comes to save us. Is that because we asked him to? No. Because was he responding to this right, innocent heart that we had among this world of evil? No. No, it says in Romans 5 that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't even deserve it. We didn't even want him. We didn't even realize we had a problem and Christ still came. And he was willing to sacrifice to do this. Philippians 2, speaking of Christ, it says he, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, like the whole gospel right here, if you ever want one verse that sums up the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.21 would do it. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christians, this is the example that has been laid before us. This is the attitude and the heart that has saved us. If you sit here today and Jesus is your savior and he is your Lord, 
then this should be the heart you want to have. And, and I, I was sitting here this week and I'm praying, I'm like, Lord, I want this to be the kind of church that longs to rescue. Give us that heart. We have to pray that because it's not always the heart of the church. In fact, I remember someone said, I can't remember some pastor, he said, sometimes the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Some of you have been in churches like that. But you get what you deserve or we're done with you. That's the way of the world. It's not the way of the gospel. I think that's why here he says in Galatians 6, with a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. That's hard. It's hard to be frustrated with somebody, to be impatient with somebody, to be annoyed, to be tired of them wasting, tired of how they were affecting other people, and yet to be gentle. That doesn't mean we don't speak our mind. Scripture is very clear, very clear about exhorting and rebuking people. But he says in gentleness. And the only way you can do this, you can be this determined, willing to sacrifice willing to call them out, willing to go rescue them, willing to put in the time, and yet do it in a gentle way, is because you understand what Christ has done for you. When you realize, man, God saved me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I still blow it most of the time. And yet he saved me. When you wrap your mind around that grace of God as much as you can, then you're like, man, this message of hope, man, this world needs it. There's people that need it. I think of all the people who have pursued me, who have come to me when I'm not following Christ, when I was younger, and they say, Jeff, man, I'm worried about you. You need to stop living the way you're living. And listen, I am not one of those where they said it to me one time and I fell on my knees and I'm like, Jesus, save me. I would sit there and I would continue to not follow the Lord. And they would probably be so filled with frustrated, they'd probably bang their head against the wall because I am a hard-headed dude if you haven't figured that out yet. And yet they were patient and loving with me. And I have no idea where I would be today if it wasn't for their willingness to sacrifice and rescue me from living a life that was not following Christ. And that's why I get such joy in, in, in doing my best to rescue others or help to rescue others. And I know some of you are probably in these unique scenarios and I, you know, what if this, what if that? And I, and I can't speak to all of those. You know, and I, can, and I can talk to you about them later if you'd like, be happy to. But the point is you should have a heart and a desire that says, God, I want to save people. I want to rescue people. I want to, I want to help, help you do for others what you've done for me. That should always be our heart's desire. And at any time we're, we're hesitant to go rescue someone because they don't want to listen, I've given up, I'm done. We have to be so skeptical of our own hearts because the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17. Right? We have to learn such as intimacy with the Holy Spirit that when we know that when he is prompting us. It's time. Go talk to him. Go rescue them. Proverbs 24 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. we would do as a church to take this verse and hold it to our, our hearts, to pray that we do it in our lives, to become this determined with people. Jude puts it another way. 
snatch people from the fire. And I'll tell you what right now, if this is something that you do and you say, Lord, give me the heart to rescue, give me the heart to save, you know, help me have my eyes open. This is when becoming a Christian gets really exciting. A lot of us, we're boring Christians. We think following Christ is boring because we're not really following him. We're sitting here, we're comfortable. We're sitting back in camp while we let other people go out and rescue. But when we get this heart and we start looking for people, say, Lord, where can you use me in someone's life? He will do it. Sometimes you'll feel like you regret it <laughs> in your flesh, but he will do it. And, then, and when you do that and you start living that way, it will, what make you, if you ever struggle reading your Bible, let me put it this way, if you ever struggle stopping with God in prayer, if you ever struggle with like coming to church, right? All biblical things that we are commanded, encouraged to do. If you struggle with all of those things, the way to not struggle with them is to put yourself in a place where you are pursuing people for Christ because you will feel so ill-equipped you will feel so not ready to do this. It will push you to come to the feet of Christ to get prepared that you may be more effective for his name. I tell you right now, I yet to meet anybody who's literally out there doing their best, praying and seeking to save those who are lost, who have a problem with reading their Bible or a problem with praying or a problem with going to church. Now, it's a struggle for everybody because it's our human nature, but these are the people that they don't struggle like some of us where we don't pick up our Bible for weeks or months or we pick it up for two minutes. Why? Because they're passionately involved in the spiritual warfare that's going out there. They're very involved in saving people. They're excited. They understand what they need to do, what they need to be to equip themselves. Just like Abram's man, they were ready. They had been trained for this. They were ready. They were ready to go. They knew how to handle themselves. I think this is why passage, why uh, Ephesians 6, where it talks about the armor of God is so important. Listen to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having bastoned on the belt of truth and the breastplate of light righteousness. That means having your firm foundation in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done. And that is an unbreakable bond for those who put their faith in him. He goes on to say, and as your shoes for your feet, in verse 15, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That means because you stand firm and you're protected by God's righteous act of death and resurrection, your faith in him, that you'll walk into any situation and you have peace that God is with you. He'll take care of it. You don't have to live in fear. Then it says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, right? You can't save other people if you're wounded. If you're bleeding out, you're no good to save the person next to you. And when we are not walking in faith with God, we're bleeding out from all the wounds and the pains of our lives, whether it's from our sin or from hurt from other people like we talked about last week, or, or the way we look at them, the way we interact with them, it, it, completely different. But when we have faith in our lives in God, then we realize, man, I may have sinned, 
but God's righteousness is greater. He is going to restore me. He's going to work me through this. He's going to use even this pain and these consequences in my life for his glory. And even when people hurt me, it, the way you have that, that faith is say, okay, they may have done this and this and this, but who God says I am, that is what matters. So this won't knock me down. This won't cut me. It may hurt to hear, but I know what the truth is. And you can take it. You can take more shots because you have that shield. Because sometimes when we go to help people, they do not want to be helped. And when you won't, I think my nature at least, when I go to help someone who doesn't want to be helped, I'm like, fine, you're good on your own. That's my reaction. I'm like, whatever. But when you have the shield of faith, you can walk in those situations and you can take some of their shots at them and you can continue to show them that grace and that love because of the, the armor that you're wearing of God, standing firm in his righteousness and in his faith. And then it says in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And that means when you go in and you go to rescue him, you know, you may not be like attacking other people and stealing them, throwing them over your shoulder and carrying them back home, but you're sitting down with him. You said, look, this is what God's word says. This is where you're at. This is what his truth says. And you point them to the way that they are to live. That doesn't mean they're gonna repent. That doesn't mean they're gonna follow you out of their captivity. I wish it did, but it doesn't. But what it means is you're doing your part to show them the truth, to show them the path that they must take. And in the end of the day, that is what success is. Success is doing what God has called you to do and trusting him with the results. And then it says praying at all times in the spirit. That means you're always leading on the Holy Spirit. God, if there's someone in my life I need to call, if there's someone who needs to text from me or needs to hear from me, Lord, bring them to my mind. Or when you're sitting there and you're doing work one day and, and, and God brings a, my, uh, a name to your mind, you don't just say, oh, that name just came to my mind for no reason. You stop, Lord, is there something you wanted me to do? Am I supposed to check in with him? Am I supposed to follow up with him? Right? You're constantly in the spirit seeking God. And then goes on the end 18. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It means to be alert, to know that if Jesus is who he says he is, there is a war going on in this world that you and I cannot see. The addictions with pornography, the addictions with drugs, people's marriage struggles, family struggles, the political strife we see, the war that we see, all the evil that we see in this world, that it's not what we just see, that there is a war going behind all of it. It is all a spiritual battle. And when we understand it, it changes how we walk in this world. It changes how we prepare ourselves. It gives us a keen sense of looking around for those that we haven't seen in a while, that we're worried about, we know that are struggling. And it gives us an opportunity in the full over of God to go and be a part of God's rescue plan for their lives. And I can think of many things I can think better than to know that somehow I got to play a role in helping bringing someone back to the Lord. I mean, it's his victory, it's his power, it's his spirit, it's his strength, but that he would use a messed up sinner like me to help save someone else. Praise be to God. May that be said of all of us. Amen.